Would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word? God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm grateful to Skip Sorensen, who was here last Sunday and who preached from Ruth chapter 3. I pray in my prayer was last week that God through his word would feed you, encourage you, and shape you for greater obedience and faith. As we look at this story of Ruth chapter 4, we begin to see glimpses of, that we've alluded to, of a greater story. Maybe you've read a great book. And at the end of reading that great book, hoped that there would be a sequel to it. It was that good. Maybe you watched a wonderful movie and you hoped that another one was going to follow. And maybe you were sitting down with someone who was a gripping storyteller. And at the end of telling you one story, you were praying silently that they would tell you another one because the way they told a story was mesmerizing. You wanted another story, a story that would lead into maybe another one. Well, this morning, our story of Ruth we find in chapter 4 is a story within a story. It's an account of Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, and their lives and the birth of Obed, but it is so much bigger than that. When we read through Ruth, we read as we come to the end of the chapter, understanding that as we read God's Word, we read the story, we read that book, we read those chapters with a greater story of God's Word in mind with the greater story of God's redemption that he has throughout all history within the greater context. We also read the stories of Scripture like Ruth, and we see our lives as part of the grander narrative, the grander story of God's redemptive purposes all throughout history. So as we read the story of Ruth, we see there with themes and with allusions to the person of Christ as our Redeemer, We see, in a sense, our own story and how our own story fits into the story of redemption, much like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi fit into the story of God's redemption of his people. As we've walked through this story of Ruth together, over the course of the last four weeks, we have seen Naomi lose her husband and her sons. We saw her move from her home twice. We saw Naomi be full of bitterness towards God because of the trials and the troubles that he had brought to her. Literally, she said, God has brought calamity to me. We've also seen one of Naomi's daughters-in-law stay with her, pledge herself to Naomi, leave her people and her gods to be with Naomi and to worship the one true God. We saw Ruth work in the fields for food. We saw her bless Naomi with her presence, with her care for her with her provision of food to her. Lastly, lastly, we've also seen Boaz, a wealthy landowner who's a close family member who blesses Ruth with protection, provision, and the promise of redeeming her and Naomi. This story, as we looked in the beginning, takes place in the time of the judges. As Israel is living in the promised land, they have not fully rid the land of foreign nations and their gods, and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And yet this four-chapter book, this little story, 
stands in beautiful contrast to that refrain. We see two unlikely people desiring to follow God with integrity. And we see how God blesses that and how their family and their people are blessed because of it. Ultimately, we see as we begin to watch through a genealogy, even how we readers thousands of years later are blessed because of the faithful God who redeemed these unsuspecting characters in a story and how their integrity and obedience and faith in God were used to bless multitudes of generations. This morning, we'll act with the three scenes that we see in the story, making application as we go along and some at the end to see how God is faithful in His providence when all seems lost. Look at the first scene. We have Boaz as he's bringing together these people at the gates of the city. Boaz has gone up to the gates, and as it comes off of chapter 3, his desire is to redeem Ruth, to be her kinsman redeemer, to be the one who rescues and provides for her. At the gate of the city, he gathers the kinsman redeemer, the one who's closer than he is, and witnesses all around. He brings 10 elders, and he has them sit down, and he has the other kinsman redeemer sit down, and Boaz is clearly in charge of the scene, isn't he? Boaz makes his appeal to the kinsman redeemer and lets him know that Elimelech's land is up for sale. Now, technically in those days, a widow cannot sell her own property on her own. This is sort of what leads them to being destitute. She needs a redeemer to come along and buy the property. And then if he purchases it, then can bless her, provide for her, or he can then sell it to someone else and give her the proceeds. But she on her own has no ability to sell the property. She needs someone else on her behalf to provide for her and to provide for Ruth. The kinsman redeemer initially wants to redeem her, wants to take this land, wants to purchase family land. Maybe he has ideas of riches and of gaining more property, but the second that Boaz tells him the full story, the Redeemer says what? I cannot redeem her. Twice, he says, I cannot do this. I cannot redeem. Uh, Initially, he wants to redeem her, but when Ruth the Moabite, having to marry another woman, a foreign woman, comes into the picture, this closer Redeemer whose name is not mentioned. That's unusual. When we come upon a character in this story, their names are mentioned. And actually, if you would read in English, if it was translated better for us, we would have seen that they actually called him Mr. So-and-so. Kind of a name to give somebody that you don't want to talk about in a story and sort of want to denigrate his character maybe. But here, Mr. So-and-so has no desire to redeem Ruth for himself, to marry her and thus to add more to the divisions of his inheritance. And so he tells Boaz to take the right of redemption. And in so doing, Boaz, through their customs of the day, secures Ruth as his wife. It secures the property of Elimelech that Naomi was holding. You see the response of those who are standing around as Boaz, in control of the narrative that's happening at the gate and between this other kinsman redeemer and these elders and witnesses, Boaz lets it be known, you are witnesses this day. We sort of have what seems to be like a traditional marriage ceremony today. Ruth is not there that we know of, but here's Boaz telling, I'm going to marry her, and I'm buying the rights to, which, right, sounds a little bit strange in our day. We're buying the rights to marry this woman. 
And yet here Boaz, in front of these witnesses, is making it clear you are witnesses of what's happening. Everything that's being done is of fullest integrity. Boaz could have, if he was any other lesser of a man, could have done whatever he wanted to do with Ruth when she came into the fields. He could have just married her. He could have done whatever he desired. And yet, Boaz's eyes decides to do it with full integrity. There's someone else who stands in the way. He's going to give him every opportunity to do his part to redeem Ruth and Naomi and land if he so desires. We're seeing a man here acting with great integrity. He's going about it the right way, a moral way. And in so doing is bringing about ways of healing for Ruth and Naomi that are far beyond just merely providing for them. What Boaz does in being a man of integrity who goes about redeeming Ruth and Naomi in the correct manner is he's bringing about moral healing for her. Here was a gal who was from a different land who served a different God. People of the Moabites, an immoral and pragmatic people who didn't have God's laws. As we mentioned back in chapter one, who maybe just saw and decided to do whatever they wanted, whatever seemed right in their own eyes, just like the people of Israel in the days of the judges. So Boaz, by doing things morally upright, morally heals or redeems Ruth and Naomi. Boaz cannot go into Ruth, as it says later, and impregnate her any other way than by marrying her first, and he knows that. That's what God's law commands. God's law still commands the same. That the only way in which sex is honorable is by a husband and a wife who come together. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In the pragmatic age in which we live today, guys and girls all the time are dating and saying, Well, we should try it out before just to make sure everything works out fine, just to make sure we're compatible. Ah, makes sense, doesn't it? And from a secular culture where the only desire is happiness, makes total sense. If you're not happy, then don't do it. And yet God's laws are so much greater than our own ways. God as king sets the law for his people, and Boaz is desiring to follow in a way that obeys what God has set up. So Boaz goes about things the right way. When you are a person of integrity in the small ways, you can almost guarantee there'll be a person of integrity when it comes to the big decisions. Be a person of integrity now in small ways, teens, boys, girls, in small ways. Be honest with your dealings. Pay what you owe. Don't steal from a grocery store. Don't do things that you ought not to do. When you are told to do something, do it. Be a person of integrity in small ways. And then when it comes to bigger decisions of life, your first motivation will be desiring to do what it is that God has called you to do, because that's been your practice all along. Not in a moralistic sense of, I just, I have to do these things to try and gain favor with God. No, it's because I delight in Him, and I want to serve Him as my King. And so I want to do what God calls me to do. And I think that's what we see with Boaz here. Desiring to go about it in a right way, bringing about moral healing, integrity to a woman who all along in this book has been called Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the foreigner, 
Ruth, the one who stands outside of the people of God. And I think there's a way in which Boaz is desiring to bless her far more than just being Mrs. Boaz. He wants to bless her in ways that bring about moral integrity and healing. But there's another way in which Boaz will bring about emotional healing. Boaz desires to redeem Ruth and Naomi soon. So he goes about it immediately. Notice that from chapter 3 to chapter 4, it's almost as though immediately he goes and he arranges a meeting with this other kinsman redeemer. This brings about uh, intentionality on Boaz's part to seek emotional healing for someone he cares for. Someone cares for Ruth. But she hasn't had that in a while. We don't know what kind of husband Malon was to her. But Malon was of a different uh, people. Ruth was an outsider, a foreigner, was, was of the Moabites. And Malon didn't have any children with Ruth. It could have been part of God's judgment on them. We see that in other parts of Scripture. We're not making that up. So there's times where God brings judgment by closing a womb. Now, Please don't take that to ever mean that if God has not allowed you to have children, that's somehow God's judgment on you and your family. But sometimes in the scripture, God does that. Ruth and her husband, Malon, don't have any children. Boaz, uh, excuse me, uh, Orpah and her husband, Chilion, don't have any children. So that Naomi is left without sons, is left without grandchildren when they leave Moab. And here, Ruth is brought into a relationship with Boaz, is being redeemed. Someone cares for her. Someone is working on her situation right now. now. He was providing food for her. He was being generous to her by letting her glean among his other workers. But here he goes about setting in place lifelong care and protection. He's setting about committing his life to her and her to him. He is purchasing the rights to redeem her and Naomi. And that has to bring about emotional healing. For someone who's been hurt emotionally, for someone who's had uh, difficulties and troubles, you look at the amount of uh, trouble that God had ordained to bring about for Ruth and Naomi in the last several years, death after death, Even before that, you had famine in the land of Israel that took Naomi and Elimelech to Moab. All of these things bring certain questioning. When all of a sudden something happens, is God going to pull this out from under me as well? In Dr. Smith's last email, he's writing in Honduras. And if you're on the email list, you saw him writing and saying, I think as I sit in Honduras right now, I can be pretty sure that this has worked out that God has brought us to Honduras because it's been such a long road of God bringing them to where he had them. But can't that be sometimes true for us? We see so many things not go the way that we wanted, and we lose trust in the God who ordains all things for our good. And God in his kindness to Ruth and Naomi brings about emotional healing through a man who desires to redeem them and is working on it right now. He's not just talking about, yeah, Ruth, in a few months, when I get everything in order, then I'll redeem you. She has to come back and, hey, Boaz, remember about that whole redemption thing? Yeah, 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 I'm working on it. I got a whole bunch of paperwork. I got stuff I got to do. You know, the fields, it's harvest time again. It's busy. He doesn't do that. He goes right to the gate and seems to take care of it right away bringing about emotional healing and help. 
for one who is without any hope, when all seems lost, yet they have one who is working on their behalf. In the same way, in the same scene, Boaz desires to redeem Ruth and Naomi for the good of their family, not his line. Over and over again, as he's talking to the other kinsman redeemer who stands closer, he speaks and he says, when you buy this field from the hand of Naomi, you also are acquiring Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, there's a part of me that just wonders, right, in the way that Boaz is speaking some of these things, if he's not trying to make it in such a way as, hey, just so you know, if you're going to purchase that field, wonderful. But when you do, you acquire this stuff. And in such a way as sort of to, you know, we can all do this type of thing. If you're trying to get a trade with somebody, you want to make yours look so much better and theirs, well, I think I could settle for what you're offering me for that, you know? You're meeting someone for Facebook Marketplace deal and you're going to swap some goods or something like that. And here, it seems a little crass because we're talking about human beings in this story. But in their custom, this is how things were done. As the scripture says, these things were done this way in order of redeeming and exchanging. But when you do so, you will acquire Ruth the Moabite, and you will perpetuate someone else's name. You will perpetuate the name of the dead. You will perpetuate Malon, Chilion, Elimelech's line, not your own. This child that will be born will be born with their last name, maybe. Are you willing to get into that kind of a deal? Your inheritance now will be split among your own children and your wife and their children and their wives and their family and you willing to get into that deal? See, all of a sudden it could be that Boaz is maybe tainting it a little bit. But he's giving the full story of what will really happen. And notice the other guy is not willing to do so. I cannot redeem it for myself, verse 6. I cannot redeem it. At the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse, twice. I cannot do this. Take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. Oh, here Boaz is one who's a man of integrity, who's desiring to bring emotional healing to Ruth and Naomi in the way that he is intentional to come and to provide for them, to redeem them, but also brings about healing for them in the way uh, in which he moves selflessly, bringing ethnic healing. Her reputation will be healed. The line of Elimelech will continue the line that God's desiring to bring about his son will continue. Oh, we knew that it would. It's a matter of who God will use to bring it about. And here Boaz, in such a way, ethnically redeems what will be his wife in such a selfless manner as to say, this will be to, per to perpetuate another's line and not my own. We don't know if Boaz has another wife or other children at all. He could be a bachelor. And here we see that he's willing with this wife, if it's his first wife, which again is such crass language to think of, we don't allow anyone else to be talking like this today, right? Living under God as our king, men are not allowed to have more than one wife. This kind of an illustration here would not fly today. If you came to me and said, I am married to someone else, but I'm going to redeem another woman because her husband passed away and I'm going to perpetuate his line, we would say, no, you're not then we would do everything that we could to stop you. We would not allow somebody to take off their sandal and confirm a deal. We would not allow conversations to happen at the gate. We would not say that this is healing or redemptive in any manner, because it wouldn't be. 
Somehow these things are just odd in the way that God works. And yet God working through these customs in this day brings about this redemption for Ruth and for Naomi and for the line of Elimelech through a man who is selfless. He's a selfless redeemer who's desiring to care more for Ruth and Naomi than his own self, his own reputation. He's desiring to bring healing to them now, not wait. He's desiring to be careful and kind and healing them emotionally as well. Well, the second scene that we come to, that is by far the longest one in this chapter. But the second one we come to is now Boaz and Ruth are married. Verse 13 begins, Boaz takes Ruth and she becomes his wife. And very soon, as often is the case, husband and wife come together, the marriage is consummated, and there's a child. Ruth conceives. Ruth bears a son. And notice verse 14. Here you have wedding, married life, uh, she's pregnant, all of this excitement for Ruth. Ruth has been married before, but Ruth has never had a child before. All of these things that are so exciting, you know, uh, for it's not quite like that in those days, but excitement nonetheless. As that baby bump is growing and they're deciding on names, although it seems like the text says they didn't get to choose the name. The ladies of the city chose the name a little strange, but but you notice in verse 14, here Ruth gives birth to a son, and the women say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Verse 16, Naomi takes the child and lays him on her lap and becomes his nurse. The women of the neighborhood give him a name, and they bless Naomi, almost as though it seems to be Naomi's child. God has given a son, verse 17, to Naomi, and they name him Obed. We don't see any response from Ruth. We don't see any response of, no, that's my son, thank you very much. Boaz willingly, selflessly redeems Ruth and Naomi, and Ruth selflessly, I think, all all signs point to this, is selflessly allowing this child to continue the line of Elimelech and be seen as Naomi's child and not as hers. Now, Ruth is listed in Matthew 1 as the mother of the child, and we all would know that. But here in both ways, we see while direction from the women, attention is given to Naomi, and I think for literary purposes, but here Boaz redeems Ruth, marries Ruth. They have a son together, and blessing and credit is given to Naomi instead. In Boaz's redemption of Ruth, he brings about relational healing. Ruth is married now. She's able to have a child now. She has a son, and things are good. She has a good redeemer who is providing for her, bringing relational, emotional, ethnic, careful healing for her. Boaz redeems Ruth, and blessings come on Naomi, on God's people, and on us because of the seed that will come from Obed, their son. And Boaz's redeeming of Ruth brings about spiritual healing, spiritual blessing on his family, those he's redeemed, and others. The redemption that Boaz brings has far greater ramifications than just merely Ruth and Naomi and now Obed. 
We have a story within a story. As we see there at the end of verse 17, Obed is the father of Jesse, the father of David. His grandson will be David the king. In a day when there's not a king yet, Israel hasn't been asking for a king. We're in the time of the judges. And yet God knows ahead of time what Israel will ask for and has provided generations before. A king will come, and you haven't even asked me for one yet. When all seems lost, God's faithful providence has been working often years in advance. When you begin to trace all that God has done in your life, and you even begin to trace some of the difficulties that you have faced, and they will be and can be incredibly hard. Nobody is taking away from the difficulties that Ruth, Naomi have faced in chapter 1. The loss of a husband, the loss of sons. Nobody's signing up for that. Nobody, except those who have lost them, knows what the pain is like to go through that. Nobody is taking away or minimizing their pain. And yet, all of a sudden, to be able to see how God works, even in generations before, to bring about far greater good for His people than they could have imagined. And the difficult things that God is bringing about, it would be helpful for us to begin working through and journaling, writing those down, writing down all of the pieces that God has brought into it. Just think of one instance. We have friends who live... uh, Oh, I'm not going to think of the Grandview, and their son has leukemia. And for the last six months, have been going through a horrific time. We're just seeing glimpses of it on social media. But a horrific time of watching an 11-year-old boy just about losing his life in their efforts to try and save his life with chemotherapy and radiation. And we are being blessed by watching how they're responding to it. But just think in that scenario... Uh, an incredible surgeon who does a surgery, a, a doctor who came up with radiation, chemotherapy, uh, the surgeons and the equipment and the doctors and the crew at Seattle Children's Hospital. All of those people were born before that child was born. All of those systems were put into place before he ever had leukemia. The hospital was built and funded and people were working there long before his parents were born. And generations and years prior to your difficulty, begin to trace back seeing the faithful providence of God, even in your own salvation story. You might think, well, I came to faith in a family who had always gone to church. Always? Your grandfather still came to faith in Christ. Your parents still came to faith in Christ. They could have walked away from the faith and they didn't. Trace it back. See how God has redeemed over generations. Those difficulties that are coming to you are not by accident, but are by the good hand of a faithful father whose providence is meant to bring you to holiness, not just to happiness, who is meant to show you the greater context of redemption, not letting you get lost in the milieu of the day-to-day. So it's by no accident that here at the end of 17, Verse 17, we begin to see a greater context for this story. Now, we cheated, and several weeks ago, we mentioned this verse, letting you in on and letting me in on the fact that this has a greater context than just these four chapters of a lady named Ruth and a guy named Boaz, and and thinking, what a wonderful love story. They should really make a movie about this. It's far greater than that. 
And we get a glimpse of it at the end of verse 17 as we see this child that is born to them, just a child who's given over to a nurse and said his son is born to Naomi now, and yet it's not. His grandson will be the king. His grandson is promised. David the king is promised that someone will sit on his throne forever and ever. Who can do that except God himself who will reign forever on David's throne? And that leads us into verse 18, which gives us the third scene. The third scene, which is just a genealogy. It's just a list of names, right? New Testament, Old Testament, have lots of these chapters. I love them when they come up in my Bible reading, right? You just go, I'm just going to skim through that. There's no real pertinent information in there at all. Somebody else might be going, I'm getting lost. I don't even know how to pronounce them. Just skip right to the end, right? Pragmatically. It's just a list of names. But it's helpful for us to see where it starts and where it ends and who's included and who's not. And here at the end of it, again, is just a greater picture of showing how all these generations preceded before. Every one of these men had to have lived, had to have had a son, which meant they had to have gotten married or had a wife. That son had to have lived and not died to have a son themselves so that in all of that short genealogy, David is born. And God continued to work through uh, David, whose heart was after his own heart. We see a genealogy here where Israel is blessed with King David who is to come. Hope that is to come by means of a king who desires to follow after God. God's people are blessed because of God's faithful providence to his people. God redeems Naomi. This book is called Ruth, but it's a story of Naomi. God redeems Naomi through his faithful providence, seen in the love of Ruth the generosity and integrity of Boaz. Naomi could not have experienced the joy of chapter 4 without the pain of chapter 1. The pain of chapter 1 is real and excruciating, but the gift of chapter 4 is full of life, a picture of eternal life to come. While chapter 1 only sees death, chapter 4 sees resurrection. You see that because the line of Elimelech is perpetuated. One who was dead, Boaz says several times, will live again. Naomi thought she was full while they were in Moab, but spiritually they were not where God wanted them. There were no children born to them, and in truth they were empty. And yet in the midst of their emptiness, while maybe financially or food-wise, physically they felt full, they spiritually were empty. And in the midst of their emptiness, God brought redemption to them, to Naomi, to Ruth, and he did so by means of death. The clouds began to part for Naomi. The darkness began to lift when she left Moab. Ever since she's left Moab and has made her way to Israel, God has begun to show her grace upon grace. And God shows us that he redeems his people from death to life through the life and death of Jesus, one who came in the line of David, who's in the line of Boaz through Ruth. Jesus is the only redeemer, not Boaz, not Ruth, but the only redeemer to live a perfect life on earth to be fully God and fully man, 
to love those who are actively rebelling against him and his father. And he willingly sheds his blood for our sins. Boaz has a transaction to make. Boaz has a business transaction with somebody asking them if they want to purchase a person and a field. Jesus has far more than that. Jesus purchases our redemption for rebel sinners by his own blood, not merely by a sandal or by coins. Jesus has come already. He's come in the flesh. He has come down to us. And with his coming, he has established his kingdom here on earth. Jesus is coming again, and when he does, he will fulfill all things. He will redeem all things, make all things right, and fully establish his eternal rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth. So we, like Ruth, Boaz, live now as God's redeemed people. We live as believers in Christ under God's rule as our Lord and we live in God's place where he has us. And this means for us as his redeemed people that we desire to live. We ought to desire to live according to God's rules for his kingdom and not according to our rules in God's kingdom. That only makes sense, right? If God is the king of his kingdom, then we follow his rules for his kingdom living. He says in 1 Peter, but as he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. For us to do otherwise, to live according to my rules in God's kingdom is treason. This is true of God's people, God's redeemed people. Whether things are going good, uh, like uh, Naomi thought they were in Moab, for a while before death came, or things are going good like they were for Ruth when she met Boaz, or when things are going badly. This is true of us, and a consistency of holy living, and a desire to obey our king, whether things are going good or things are going bad. In Ruth, we saw a lot of tragedy in chapter 1 and a lot of blessing in chapter 4. And for us as God's people, when we live in times of blessing, Jesus calls us to Live as one who, in humility, considers others more significant than ourselves. And we saw Ruth and Boaz selflessly serving others and seeking the good of others, not their own name, not even in regards to a child. And Jesus does this as well. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. In Christ, you can think this way. In Christ, you can live, humbly considering others more significant. Boaz was a man of great means. Things were going well for him. But we saw him looking out for the needs and blessings of others who couldn't repay him. And if God has so blessed you, whether that be in money or in relationships, whether that be emotionally or in other ways, if God has so blessed you, then treat those, use those riches or blessings as ways that you can greater serve Christ and others, still focusing on growing in sanctification. First Timothy chapter 6 speaks to the rich. 
And that can be rich financially or in any way. And it says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be proud, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul, writing Timothy, says, tell the rich in whatever way that they are rich to put their riches in perspective of eternity, their story in perspective of the grander story and narrative. In times of blessing, we ought to be uh, ethically obeying God's laws as king and also in times of hardship. We saw lots of hardship in Ruth. It is not if you go through difficulty or hardship, how will you respond, but when you go through difficulty or hardship. And being prepared ahead of time to respond well in the midst of difficulty, that God is our king, that his faithful providence is seen often most gloriously through difficulty and loss. There are plenty of examples in Scripture of ungodly men who take advantage of women, but Boaz doesn't. He cares truly for her and her integrity. There are plenty of examples in Scripture of selfish men only looking out for themselves, but Boaz cares for Ruth and Naomi with generosity and selflessness in the midst of their difficulty. There are countless stories of people in the Scriptures going through great loss and difficulty, like Naomi and Ruth, and how God continues to faithfully provide for them and call him to a greater context of their life in him. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will grow bitter. No, it doesn't say that. That's what, Ruth, that's what Naomi did. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Brothers and sisters, this is our calling. Whether it's in the good things that God brings, the blessings of life or the difficulties, to be able to see God's faithful providence in all of it, our faithful creator, entrusting our souls to him no matter what circumstances may come and seeing them in the greater context of the greater story of redemption that God is desiring to do in you. It does not mean that the difficulties will be easy, but it does mean that he is faithful that the creator of all is the sustainer of your life. And brothers and sisters, as Peter writes, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This we know, that we cannot do it on our own. You and I cannot follow God's laws, even though we know he's our king, even though he has given his life for our sinful souls, we cannot follow him perfectly. We have tried and we have failed. We have gotten up in the morning. We have read our Bible. We started our day well. And at breakfast, we lost integrity. We cannot do this on our own. Only Jesus can. Boaz, Ruth, they were not perfect redeemers. They were not wonderful examples in the fullest. They needed God's help. This is why the Scriptures call us to have the mind of Christ. Uh, the works of the Spirit. 
Brothers and sisters, let's entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good until Jesus comes again to restore all things to himself. Would you join me as we pray? Our faithful Father, we are so grateful that we can even speak in the language of one story within another story, trusting that the God who has created all things has a grand design of how all things will come about in the end. And by the end, we speak of our time, not of yours. We know and we trust you are the eternal God who has founded uh, the universe by your plan and according to your design, who has brought about redemption by your son, Jesus, to those who will be your people. And you delight now, in the midst of good and in the midst of difficulty, that we would worship you, that we would trust in you as our faithful God, and that we would do what is right and do what is good, And Father, would you continue to grow us in our faith, to trust in you before the difficulties come, before we're in a good situation where we have more than we can handle and more than we know what to do with in a good and holy manner. Would you continue working in us now as children, as young people, as young adults, as young families, as seniors, before the difficulties come that seem to overwhelm us? Would you grow us in our faith now? Would you strengthen us to trust that you are a faithful creator? And we need your help to do that. And Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who came and lived the perfect life that we could not live and died a death that we will not die because we trust in him. And Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation, that they would do so today, that they would hear of a redeemer who has come, And at the cost of his own life has given his blood for their lives, for their sin. That's not a good deal from our perspectives. And yet from yours, it was what had to be done to redeem a people. And for that, we will be eternally singing your praises. And so, Father, would you be with us now as we sing the praises uh, of our Savior who has come and sing hallelujah to a wonderful Savior, Jesus, who has come and given us redemption. And in this we pray, amen.